0: If you forgot forgotten your Bible today, you can find that in your pew Bible. We all know where James is, I think. That's the book of James, chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 to 11. Verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay. The workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury. And self-indulgence, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Patiently, waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You, too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another. Brothers and sisters, or you will be judged, the judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. May the Lord has his blessing the reading of this portion of Scripture, even for our hearts this morning. Let's bow our heads and hearts for prayer. Father, we thank you that we can come before you to hear these words of truth for our hearts today. We pray, Father, for your watcher over our hearts as we receive your word. We thank you, Father, that your word is the manna from heaven that is such a blessing to us, even as we know Jesus Christ is that manna that came down from heaven to feed us and to teach us and to help us grow in grace and knowledge of you, who died on that cross for us. And so we would ever give you much praise. And we come before you this morning to offer up our praises and the sacrifice of our lips that Jesus Christ might be exalted in our eyes, that we might know him who loved us and gave himself for us in such a way that we can carry this knowledge of you out to this dying world. And so we pray you'll bless us this week as we go forth into our mission field, wherever that might be, wherever you have placed us, where you planted us, <clears throat> that we might glorify you in a wonderful way. So watch over us, Father, even this morning, and use it for your glory. And bless those who are preaching Jesus Christ from many pulpits across this land. Bless your word as it goes forth, even from those pulpits in this pulpit. Bless our pastors who brings that message. Bless our deacons, bless our leadership. Teach us, Lord, to submit ourselves in obedience to each one that we might have a church full of harmony and love, as we love one another. So bless us, Lord, even now, and use us in this worship hour in a wonderful way. We think of our church family, Lord. We think of the needs in our church family. We think of our shut-ins and the ones we mentioned who are unwell. We pray, Father, for each one that your spirit of blessing would be their portion, even as they pray, Father, for your watch care over those who haven't been well in these last uh, few days. We bring them before you father we think of jane we think of ellison we think of evelyn we think of bill father we bring them all here that your spirit might touch them wherever they are and use them for your glory where you have planted them and are using them we pray father for each one we pray father for uh, those who even uh, uh, come against us in this church uh, father we pray father you watch over that also that the spirit of our living god might bless us in every way might use us in the coming days, might use us in that memorial service next Saturday. We pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would be there and touch hearts, of people who know not you. And so we pray for that group, even next Saturday, that the Spirit of God would be there in mighty power to do your work, Father, and your word and touch hearts for your glory. So bless us, Father. Bless our church family. Touch us, Lord. Meet our needs. Let us realize how close you are to us. For you're not far from any heart that puts their trust in you. Bless our pastors who brings the message, and bless our hearts that we receive it. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Let's turn to the Lord one more time together in prayer.
1: Heavenly Father, Lord, you are the Father of lights with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Lord, you never change. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to you. We thank you, Lord, that though sin abounds, your grace abounds that much more. So, Father, we pray that as we sit under the teaching of your word this morning, that you would help us to examine our hearts by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would help me to speak in the power that can come from you. Lord, I pray that you would bring repentance where necessary, that you would bring encouragement where necessary, and Lord, that you would help us all to draw closer to you through this passage of Scripture this morning. Lord, I pray that you will help us all to examine ourselves and to, to confess our weakness to you and rely on your strength and on the precious blood of Jesus Christ. for We have no other claim. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to, uh, to draw your attention to the, uh, the church bulletin. Again, this morning, I don't know if you noticed, but on the cover there's a, a photo of a tombstone uh, with the word rust on it. And uh, that is an actual tombstone. Um, it's in a grave. at a grave site in the, in a town called Northampton, which is in New England. And I was there about a year and a half ago for a friend's wedding. And maybe hopefully you've heard of Northampton. That was actually the place where Jonathan Edwards lived and ministered, who's one of arguably one of the the greatest theologians that the United States ever produced. He ministered there in the 1800s. And uh, while we were there, we actually went to. Um, to this particular graveyard, and in that graveyard is the, the mortal remains of David Brainerd. Now, maybe you haven't heard of David Brainerd, but he was a, a close friend of Jonathan Edwards and was a missionary um, to the Indians in that area. And he died um, at, at less than 30 years of age, but, uh, but he was a man who had committed his life to the service of the Lord, and we probably wouldn't even know about David Brainerd if it were not for Jonathan Edwards writing his memoirs. And so I'd really encourage you, um, if you can get a hold of those memoirs, I've read excerpts of it, but I would really encourage you um, to read those those memoirs in order just to spur you on to love and good deeds. But it's so ironic that there in that graveyard where a man whose, whose life was poured out in the service of the gospel lies buried there's also a tombstone that would have the word on it rust and I thought of a couple of things I thought of of the uh, a play on words for for rust in peace but uh, but obviously those who are cor- are corroding in hell do not feel any rest they are not resting in peace and I thought also of of another popular um, saying that rust never sleeps. Rust never sleeps. And I want us to think about that as we talk this morning about the way that the, that the rust that corrodes the riches of the wicked wealthy will also go on to corrode them. It will go on, as we read this morning, to, to eat their very flesh, like fire. Now, there's a popular TV preacher um, who many of you are probably familiar with, and he made headlines this week because he had called Mormons our brothers in Christ. And, uh, and this, this particular individual, I mean, he is, there's over 100 million people around the world who watch his program every week. And he called Mormons brothers in Christ. Now, this statement betrays his lack of understanding of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you're familiar with this man's ministry, I hope you're also familiar with with his book, his popular book, Your Best Life Now. And if you're familiar with that book and are reading that with, with biblical discernment, you'll realize that his statements about Mormons being fellow Christians really it shouldn't come as a surprise because this man clearly does not know the true gospel of Jesus Christ. In this book, he states that God wants this to be the best time of your life. And if we want to receive this favor from God, we have to enlarge our vision. We have to visualize our success. He says that our thinking, in this sense, affects our blessing. Now, I actually do agree with that statement that our thinking does affect our blessing, but not remotely in the way that he means it. He's talking about an a almost new age form of visualizing in order to, to gain material prosperity. But I think an, an even more dangerous thing that he presents in this book is the way he defines blessing. He defines blessing as having material wealth, as having big homes, and as, as having a, a, a good, uh, what he would say is as a, as, as a, a positive self-image. Now, does that line up with, with what James is teaching in this passage? Does that line up with, with the teaching of Jesus? James and Jesus have a very, very different definition of blessing. And it has nothing to do with your best life now. Jesus said that those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who face persecution, those who are scorned, and those who are slandered are those who are blessed. And that's what James is also teaching us here this morning. Do you visualize success In order to gain a blessing, can you find that teaching anywhere in Scripture? It's just not there. In fact, it directly contradicts Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2 9 says that what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. And what this guy is saying is that you must conceive it in your mind sorry, conceive it in your heart and your mind before you can receive it. That is simply not true. It's just not true. The way that we find the blessing of God is by, yes, by our, through our thinking, as we renew our minds in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we don't renew our minds by meditating on material possessions. We renew our minds by meditating on Jesus Christ, on his life, on his death, and his resurrection. James' teaching brings to mind the, the teaching of, of Jesus from the Sermon of the Mount. Where Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. So do you think the concept of receiving blessings in this life would have been well received by those suffering Christians? there that James is addressing? Or what about the suffering Christians around the world who are destitute and their situation is made far, far worse as they they have their, their possessions destroyed, as they lose jobs, as husbands and as primary breadwinners are, are killed simply because they call on the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? But that's nothing new. This was happening all the way back to the beginning. The theme of rich versus poor is is throughout the book of James. Remember that he's writing to the dispersion. Those Jews who had been scattered throughout the, the region of Palestine because of the severe persecution that had happened under the Romans. These Christians were suffering. Many of them were destitute and they needed encouragement. And that's why James began this letter by saying, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.'" So their hope was not in their present circumstances their, their hope was in the God who was in control of their circumstances and was using their circumstances to transform them, to cause them to grow in Christ-likeness. That's where their hope lied. Is that where your hope lies this morning? In the midst of the, the maybe painful circumstances that you are facing, is your hope in the sovereign of the universe who demonstrated his love for you by sending his son to die for your sins to know that that the devil didn't let one slip under God's radar that he is that God is really in control and he really is working together all things for your good and for his glory so James is is telling us here in this passage this morning that where our treasure is will reveal where our heart really is, just as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. Remember that in this letter, he is laying down the tests of true faith. So James chapter 5 continues this theme, and particularly here in verses 1 to 11, the true Christians who would have heard this would have received great encouragement. But the false professors wouldn't have been very happy, especially the rich oppressors that he was targeting here directly in verses one to excuse me, in one to six, our passage this morning. So I want you to put yourself for a second in the position of those poor Christians, those who, who were facing the persecution that we're reading about, those who were suffering at the hand of the rich oppressors they were being beat down by the rich in the world, and then they were coming to church and being beat down by the people in the church who were preferring the wealthy above them. So they couldn't even find any sense of of solace and comfort in the very place that they should have been finding it. So James sets out to right that wrong. Back in in James, in James chapter two, verses one to seven, he he, he measured out a little bit of justice where he said, God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. And then he indicts the wicked wealthy by saying, Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And then he leveled further criticism against the wicked wealthy in chapter 4, verses 11 to 17. And then here he's bringing the message home. As I mentioned last week, this verse, chapter 5, this passage, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, is particularly harsh. Whereas in James chapter four verses thirteen to seventeen, the arrogant merchants were the target of James's criticism. This week his target is the covetous landowners, and he moves from beyond mere criticism into condemnation. This passage that that, that James writes here is very similar to that of the Old Testament prophets when they when they leveled their condemnation. On the unjust in the Old Testament. So please turn with me in your Bible to to Isaiah chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Isaiah chapter 3. The Lord has taken his place to contend, he stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. So here in this passage, James is encouraging those downtrodden poor Christians by telling them that God's justice is coming. That he is coming to judge the wicked wealthy, so so James says here in verse one, "Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So he begins this passage the way he did the last section, where he says, "Come now, or as the NIV paraphrases it now listen, listen, you rich people. James is addressing them directly, they were there. In that very congregation. And he says to them, weep and wail or weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Imagine the looks on their faces, on those wealthy, on those wicked wealthy people as they heard these words. They probably would have turned red Otherwise, other words, others probably would have turned white and maybe even others green. There would have been a, a, probably a rainbow of reactions here as they realized that he was directly targeting them with these words. Now, throughout the New Testament, we find references to weeping, and it's often tied to repentance. Think of Peter as he wept when he realized that, that Jesus' prophecy that he would deny, that Peter would deny the Lord three times before the, the rooster crowed, came to to fruition. Or think of the woman weeping as she washed Jesus' feet with her tears. Now James uses the the similar terminology in verse 9, be wretched, mourn, and weep. In chapter 4, verse 9, he gives a call, in verse 10 rather, he gives a call to repentance where he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. John MacArthur points out that in this passage in James chapter 5 verses 1 to 3 1 to 6 there is no such call to repentance. The verbs that are here are in the perfect tense. In other words, it's as though the judgment has already been laid out. The judgment has already been laid out. Now of course, while there's life there is hope. There is always room for repentance when the Holy Spirit works in in the hard heart of of an impenitent believer. But here, James is is not calling these people to repentance. He's he's laying out their condemnation. Now, of course, we should mourn for our sin. All of us should mourn for our sin. And I know even just this this past week, I was able to see with, with stark clarity the way that my sin impacts other people. And I was broken by it. I mourned because of it. We're all called to mourn for our sin. But it's not enough just to mourn. Hebrews 12, 17 tells us that Esau found no place for repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Esau was weeping because of his sin, but he did not repent. Tears are not enough. Paul distinguishes between worldly grief and godly grief in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. He says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. There is a fruit that is tied with repentance. It might start with tears, but it doesn't end there. It ends with repentance, with a turning away from sin and turning to God. So there's a grief where one feels bad about some, about what we've done, but there it's, it's tied more to, when it's tied more to the consequences to the bad things that have happened, either either the, even the bad things that have happened to somebody else, but more likely the, the bad consequences of our sin and the bad consequences that are going to happen to us personally. So when, when somebody is is brought before a judge for committing murder. And he weeps before that judge. It's very likely not the case that he's weeping because of the harm that he's, that he's caused and the, the fact that he sinned against a holy God and then against another person, but because of the sentence that is about to be cast on him. But when there's a repentance, there is a heartfelt turning away, a, a desire to right wrongs, an eagerness to, to, to turn things around and to be made right with God and right with our, with our fellow human being. There's no forgiveness without repentance. When we come to Christ, we're not only turning to him, we're also turning away from our sin. So here in this case, in James chapter 5, the weeping doesn't give way to repentance, it gives way to wailing. It gives way to wailing. Wailing. Now, the word translated wail is often used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, to describe the reaction of the wicked on the day of the Lord. In Isaiah 13.6, we read, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Doug Moo explains that this word is found only in the Old Testament prophets and it is always used in the context of final judgment. So this also points to the fact that what we're talking about here is not an earthly judgment. What we're talking about here is eternal punishment. The punishment that God is going to bring down on the wicked on judgment day. The punishment here is called misery or more accurately miseries referring to the degree of the punishment. It's punishment that's multiplied. It's misery that is manifold. This is no momentary and light affliction like those that are being experienced by the poor in this letter. Because God for them was preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. God is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that will make whatever sufferings we're experiencing in this life light and momentary in comparison. But here, these these people who are condemned in this way, they have no hope. There's no hope. Because there's going to be no relief for their punishment. Like those in heaven, they too are also going to have resurrected bodies. But their bodies are going to be resurrected so that every nerve ending can experience the pain of punishment that God is pouring out on them. And these wicked individuals will have this pain forever. Their worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever and they will have no rest day or night In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was finely dressed and feasted while the the poor man, Lazarus, was at the gate of the rich man hoping just even for the the crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. And Lazarus was so poor and so decrepit that the dogs would even come and lick his sores. But both men died. The rich man died and Lazarus died. But while Lazarus was carried into heaven, the rich man was cast into hell. And the rich man called out for mercy, asking Abraham to send Lazarus to to dip his finger in water and put it on the, the rich man's tongue because he was in agony and he was crying out for some relief. From the flame. But Abraham replied in verse 25 that it was impossible to span the chasm between heaven and hell. And he said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And the rich man was concerned for his family and asked Abraham to send Lazarus to warn them. But Abraham said that the Bible was testimony enough and that if they would not receive the testimony of the Bible, they wouldn't be convinced even if somebody rose from the dead. Beloved, someone did rise from the dead. Not only did the Lazarus that Jesus raised come back from the dead, but Jesus himself was also resurrected. He also came back From the dead. But the wicked rejected his testimony. James goes on in verses 2 and 3 to say, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. Now, James has already alluded to the the destiny of the wicked rich and their treasure in verses 9 and 10, where he said, Let the rich Boast, sorry, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails, falls, and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now James isn't pulling any punches. We obviously, in this life, we tend to think as of our wealth as being permanent we tend to think that it's going to last forever. But James tells us that it's all going to be useless. The moths would eat the piles of clothes and the rust would devour their precious metals, but the rust would not stop at consuming their wealth. It would also bear testimony. Remember in Isaiah chapter 3, where it talked about the ill-gotten gain being found there in their houses. It's it's like the the money bag bag being being in the hand of the thief when he's caught red-handed, so to speak. It would bear testimony of their guilt. But the excruciating pain would actually come to them. It would, their, their, the, the rust would go on to consume them, to consume their very bodies. But their bodies would never be utterly consumed. The pain of those experienced. The pain experienced by those who die without Christ will be infinite, and they will have no hope for relief. As I mentioned earlier, this teaching calls to mind the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we accumulate stuff, the stuff that we accumulate easily tends to be a distraction earthly treasure can often cause us to be diverted from our eternal treasure. Now, I spent last Sunday evening at my parents' house over in West Kelowna, and I came back on Monday afternoon and and brought a few things into the kitchen and noticed that the door from from the garage into the kitchen was, was ajar. And at first I thought maybe Joel might have left it open accidentally, but then I noticed that the door jam was splintered. And then I had that sinking feeling as I realized that we'd been robbed. Now maybe you've experienced this and maybe you personally know what it, what it feels like to walk into your home and realize that, that a thief has been in there and has, has rooted through all of your stuff. I, I ran through the house. Well, I didn't run, but I, I walked through the house just to see what was missing. And I, I found out that they, they'd taken uh, Joel's bike, they'd taken my bike, they'd taken uh, both of our Xboxes and and a few other possessions. So I, I called the police. And when the officer came, he did he did a report and told me that it was very unlikely that we would get our stuff back. But uh, with with a $1,000 deductible and minimal coverage for sporting goods, the insurance isn't going to come anywhere close to to helping us to replace the amount that was stolen. But I really hope that the irony of this situation isn't lost on you. Hero was about to launch into a passage dealing with possessions, and mine gets stolen. Now, you've heard enough of my stories to know that, that, that My philosophy is that if if I survive, it'll make a good sermon illustration. And one of my friends who's a a pastor quipped on Facebook. He said that all things work together for good sermon illustrations. (laughs) And and that, I guess, is is true in this case. But, But seriously, though, I want us to think about the fact that this past week, this robbery gave me an opportunity to examine my own heart when it comes to my stuff. My prayer each week is that, is that the person that's going to be most impacted by my preaching is me, and often that's the case. Often, I mean, I have the privilege of studying God's Word each week, of, of spending hour after hour pouring over God's Word and allowing the Spirit to wash over me and quite often to convict me of my sin. And the Lord draws me to Him in Repentance. That's one of the greatest pleasures I have of being a pastor. And so this week was no exception as, as I considered my treasure in this life. And as I wavered between being glad that I wasn't there and the, and the, the wicked hope that I had been there to, to brain the guy with a baseball bat. But as is often the case, in talking with Jane about it, she helped me to get my mind back to where it needed to be. She said, This guy needs Jesus. Whoever perpetrated this crime needs Jesus. And that helped me to to, to have just a right perspective. That stuff was just stuff. Nobody was hurt, thank God. And whatever stuff I lost is nothing compared to the riches that I will receive in glory. Now, week in, week out, you also hear me talking about God's love and God's sovereignty. This also gave me an opportunity to to be reminded afresh of God's love and God's sovereignty. Again, the enemy didn't slip one under God's radar when this thief cased our, our property. God was sovereign over that. No, God is not the author of sin. But even in the midst of that robbery, God was using that to transform me and Joel to the image of Christ. And so I can still trust God no matter what happens to my stuff. I can trust God. The same is true for us. The same is true for us. Whatever things that we have, we need to commit them to the Lord, to use them for God and His glory. Otherwise, they're going to distract us from our eternal blessings. So again, the way that we handle our wealth reveals the state of our hearts. So do you live for what the world has to offer, or do you instead live for God? Remember James chapter 4, verse 4, where James wrote, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. And John also makes this point very plain in 1 John two fifteen, where he writes, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's that simple. It's that simple. The wicked wealthy in James' letter failed the test. And the way that they accumulated wealth showed that their heart was set on this life. It showed that they did not love God. And so James indicts them for four main sins. And all of these symptoms, all these sins are symptoms of their underlying sin of covetousness. So they hoarded their wealth. They defrauded their workers. They lived in self-indulgence and they condemned the righteous. So James says that they hoarded their treasure. He says in verse three, you have laid up treasure in the last days or you have hoarded treasure in the last days. Last week we discussed the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 verses 13 to 21 where Jesus warned in verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The rich fool in that passage was motivated by, by earthly treasure and, and when he was blessed with abundance, instead of using that for the glory of God, He built bigger barns in order to store his his, his amassed treasure. So he said to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Brothers and sisters, you can't take it with you. You came into this life with a body and you're leaving with even less. So what good will your treasure be when you go into the ground? Would rust be an appropriate epitaph on your tombstone? In J.R.R. Tolkien's epic novel, The Hobbit, he describes the evil dragon smog lurking in his lair deep inside lonely mountains, sitting atop a vast pile of gold. And Tolkien tells us that sitting on piles of gold is a favorite pastime of dragons. Dragons don't spend their treasure, they just pile it up and sit on it. Are you sitting on a pile of treasure? Why not instead invest it in God's kingdom? Now in this particular passage, James tells us that their sin is compounded because it is the last days. Hebrews 1, 2 tells us that God has spoken to us in these last days by His Son. The last days were inaugurated with the incarnation of Christ. The return of Christ is imminent. He could come back at any time, at any time. In verse 8 of chapter 5, we read, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. So that would have been a source of comfort for the downtrodden, but it was also a sign of looming condemnation for the wicked wealthy. If you knew how many days you had left in this life, how would you spend them? How would you use your wealth? Would it be for your comfort? Would it be for the glory of God? Brothers and sisters, in fact, all of us, our days are numbered just as the very hairs of our head are numbered. James also says that the, the wicked wealthy were to be judged because they had defrauded their workers. In, James four, in verse 4, James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God is a righteous judge, and he will mete out perfect justice. We read in Leviticus 19.13, The Lord says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Their cries go up to the Lord of hosts. Earlier I read Isaiah 3.13-15, to 15, that the Lord will enter into judgment with those who have, have devoured the poor. He is going to fight for them, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts or the Lord of Sabaoth is is one of the names of God. And it is is used in the context of God fighting for his people. where Where he uses his heavenly hosts to mete out perfect justice, perfect vengeance against his enemies. Justice will be served. And while the downtrodden poor cried out in this life, it is the rich who will cry out in the next. The cries of the poor are heard by the Lord. He will dry their eyes. But the wicked wealthy have no hope for such relief. The wicked also lived in self-indulgence. In self-indulgence, they they live for their own pleasure. L- they they live for the things that this world offered. They live for the for comfort that could be found in this life. Now, I don't know of anything that would be more apt as a description of our culture than living for comfort in this life. So often. Everything that we see in the media is geared to feed those appetites. But it's sin. It's sin. They were condemning the righteous. They were condemning the righteous. We'd already read about how they were they were bringing the, 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 the poor, the, these wealthy landowners were bringing the poor before the judges. And what was likely happening is, is the landowners were lending money to the poor in order to... to help them to, to, in order for them to be able to make ends meet. But they were lending to them at at usurious interest rates. And so that what would eventually happen is that the poor would would end up having to just, they would have nothing and they would have to hand over their land to the wealthy to feed their covetousness and the poor were destroyed. They were condemned because they, they had nothing and they were starving to death. They were starving to death, all because the wicked wealthy wanted to pad their lifestyle. So I hope, as as we think about these things, I hope that that you are examining your heart, just as I've had to do this week. So I think that the question bears asking: How should we use our money? how should we use our money of course we'd all agree that we have basic needs that, that need to be provided for for food for clothing for shelter and for those needs in those of our family we also have to pay our taxes otherwise we're breaking the law and we'll go to jail but what do you do with what's left over what do you do with what's left over And I think if your perspective is thinking about what's left over, then that betrays a wrong attitude. All that we have is given to us as a trust from the Lord. Anything that we have is really on loan from God. It's really God's. And we're called to use it for His glory, for the building of His kingdom. We're we're to give back to him from what we have received from him. John MacArthur defines being wealthy as having discretionary income. He says basically that that if you have anything left over, once your your basic needs are met, then you are wealthy. You're wealthy by the world's standards. And if that's really the standard of wealth, then all of us are wealthy. So what should we use our wealth for? Again, we need to use it to help build the kingdom of God. We invest it in heaven. We use it for for the spread of the gospel. We use it to support Bible-preaching churches. We use it to support faithful missionaries. We use it to help God by by supporting the needy, especially those of the household of faith. You might be sitting there wondering, well, what about setting a little aside for the future. I think that's actually wise. What about taking a vacation? Or what about eating out or buying something special for your wife or your kids? Now, personally, I don't think there's anything wrong with any of those things. I'm not your Holy Spirit. This is between you and God with these these discretionary things. But I want to ask the question again, though, where is your focus when it comes to these things? Do you see your wealth as a way to building your kingdom, or do you see your wealth as a way to building God's kingdom? A couple of years ago, I was uh, spending Thanksgiving in Tennessee with, with a buddy and his family, and uh, we visited a church there where the pastor was preaching about having a minimalist lifestyle. And it was, it was a good message that really caused us, sitting in the car, to really examine our own focus. But as we were, were, this was a big church, and there was kind of a lineup of cars uh, waiting to leave the church after the service. And as we're driving out, we we saw a, a Dodge Viper. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with it, with a Dodge Viper, but it's it's really, it's about a $100,000 sports car. And so that led to a discussion about whether it was, was wrong to buy a Dodge Viper. And I've got to say, I, I, I can't really come out and definitively say that spending that kind of money on a car is sin. But I do believe that quite often it's going to betray a wrong heart and a wrong focus that is focused on on what's flashy, about what's going to make us feel good. Now, does that mean that, that we all have to drive a 1979 Pinto? I hope not, but, but, I, but I do think that, that we need to be thinking about these things on a continuum. Are we thinking about trying to, to spend as much as we can without entering into sin, or are we instead trying to live on as, as little as we can in order to, to be able to maximize the glory of God in our lives? It, it's really on a continuum. Uh, Francis Chan in a in a YouTube video is is walking down a, a row of of shiny new sports cars, and he he passes a, a BMW and and a Porsche and a really flashy Mercedes, and then he he asks he's asked the question he said if if you could afford to buy any of these cars I mean these are these are at least $50,000, $60,000 cars. He said, if you could afford to buy any of these cars, which one would you buy? And then he goes on to, he said, this is the car that I bought. And he's, he's got a, at least at that time, had a, a 1996 Subaru. And I don't just share that, that statement because my last car was a, was a Subaru. But, but he is a man, his book has sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And he could easily afford just not one of those cars, he could afford any car that he wanted to buy. And he wasn't saying this in a, in a way to to glorify himself. But what, what he was saying is that is that what would make him more happy is by spending the, the, the extra forty or fifty thousand dollars that he saved on the car to, to pay for an orphanage in Africa. And he said that, that what would make him more happy was the looks on the faces of those orphans rather than thinking back to the pleasurable drives that he would had in his sports car. And he said even more than that, that, that he was eagerly anticipating the joys of heaven where everything that he had sacrificed would be multiplied by the Lord many times over. And so he said, who's the crazy one? The person who, who drives the cheaper car and spends money for the glory of God or the person that invests in the things of this life. Now, most of us here don't have forty dollars or $50,000 kicking around. But we do have discretionary wealth. And another one of the blessings that I get to see as a pastor is the way that people here use their discretionary wealth in order to serve others. I know of several situations where people in this church have have given money to other people when they saw a need, often without that person even having any idea who it was. And they're doing this because they love God and because they love their brothers and sisters. And God is glorified in that. But it doesn't even have to be a large sum of money. Remember the the widow's penny in Mark chapter 12. Jesus said that she had contributed more than the rest. But it doesn't even have to be money. Somebody else donated a fridge to the church. Somebody else, a microwave. But it doesn't even have to be material. It can be the gift of time, which I would argue is the most valuable commodity that we have. Several people in the the church yesterday went to go and serve two individuals by helping them move. God was glorified in that. You You could offer help to an older person with their yard work or help a young couple by offering free babysitting or make a meal for somebody who's going through a hard time. These are all investments in eternity. All it takes is a heart that loves Jesus and loves people and an eye to look for a need and a will to serve that need. And if God is at work in your heart, which Christian he is? then he is willing, he is willing you. He is working in you to give you a desire and to give you an ability to carry that out, to perform those good deeds which he has prepared in advance that you should walk in them. So the rich who have their best life now are to be pitied. For them, the worst is yet to come. But I know as I, as I meditated on these things in preparation for this message, I, I was moved with compassion. I was moved to tears as I thought about my own loved ones who do not know Jesus Christ, who have invested in this life. And it, it moved me to, to, to greater desire to share the gospel with them. So as we think about the agony the agony that is is waiting for the wicked rich let us not only let it not only spur us on to use our resources for the glory of God but let us also be spurred on to be faithful to them to be faithful to God to present the gospel to them the only way that they can be saved by telling them that Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross so that they wouldn't have to. There's people here in this room who don't know Jesus Christ. Now, they may not be hoarding their treasure in the same way that these wicked rich were. They may not have gained it in the same way. But that judgment is still waiting on them. So if that applies to you, God is calling you to repent. God is calling you to turn away from your sin and to turn to Jesus Christ. But Christians, and I trust that applies to the vast majority of us here, Christian, God bore the wrath that you deserved on the cross. Think about it. Doesn't that move you to love and thanksgiving? Doesn't that spur you on to greater love and good deeds? Doesn't that make you just want to to run out there and find the the first lost person that you can and share the gospel with him? Doesn't that cause you to to want to, to, to love God by loving people? You know, I kind of joked yesterday about, about hiding my, my jeep around the corner and, and waiting for the, to see if the thief would come back tonight. You know, maybe I should do that. But instead of seeking judgment, maybe I should sit there with a gospel tract and tell him that he too can find life in Christ. The missionary Jim Elliott give up his life as he was murdered by hostile Aka Indians in Ecuador. He famously said, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So are we giving up treasures in this life to gain a treasure which we cannot lose? I pray that would be the case for us all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus Christ. Lord, who gave up riches in heaven to come and dwell amongst a sinful creation, to live a sinless life and to die a sinner's death, To bear your wrath, holy God. So that we wouldn't have to. I pray, Lord, that the knowledge of that would spur us on. To set you as our treasure above anything this life can offer. And to pour out our lives, everything we have and everything we are for your glory. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.